Welcome to American Building, a weekly recorded show whose mission is to share an alternative perspective of what we build in America and why. Together, we discover how the work of the real estate industry connects to every American. In season two, we focused on how buildings changed as a result of the pandemic. In this season, we're revisiting conversations from previous seasons to see where Americans put their heads down at night. Together, we will discover the many definitions of home across the New York City metropolitan area, which includes over 23 million Americans. Each week, we'll visit a new building and explore complex and confusing issues related to housing access to see what they can teach us about ourselves and our country. We'll meet those who work to develop in thoughtful and impactful ways, who build neighborhoods to be more sustainable, affordable, accessible, or inclusive, who labor to create thriving communities and transform the lives of generations to come. Through their stories, we will humanize often polarizing topics. Profound, surprising, and hilarious, this show is for developers and builders with boots on the ground, for innovators trying to find ways to improve our industry, for the policymakers and public employees, and for any person who has walked by a building and wondered why. And now your host, award-winning architect turned developer and startup founder, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. I'm the founder of Commonplace. Join me as I take a drive by the skylines and strip malls, crosswalks and rail crossings, balconies, buildings, and boroughs to discover a new generation of housing. Let's build common ground. In this episode, you will learn about the word mansion and what it means and about its evil twin, the McMansion. Also, you'll join me in hearing about 432 North Woodland, a redevelopment of a beautiful luxury single family home in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. When I think of the word luxury in the context of a home, I think of the word mansion. So what is a mansion? The old adage goes, A man's home is his castle. That doesn't mean that every home is a castle or a mansion. The word itself, mansion, comes from an old Latin word, maner, which is the verb that means to remain. Over time, that became mansio, or place to remain. That was absorbed into French and then into English. In contemporary use, mansion generally refers to any home over 5,000 square feet on an extremely large lot. They often feature a grand staircase, high ceilings, and luxury high-end finishes like marble and rare woods. These are typically older stately homes in historic European architectural styles. They always have multi-million dollar price tags. The levels of ostentation 
with mansions can be limitless. I've seen ones with multiple underground stories to circumvent zoning codes, ones with ballrooms, and even ones with lavish Turkish baths. More recently, McMansions were birthed by the demand for luxury homes by those without the budget to support them. For example, McMansions may be oversized in comparison to the lot size, or the features and finishes may be faux, overused, or not of the quality of a mansion. Writer Kate Wagner dissects McMansions in her cutting article for The Baffler from April 2023 called Bad Manners. In it, she calls McMansions the harbinger of the American apocalypse. She continues, the street I grew up on in Moore County, North Carolina is unrecognizable now. What was once a mix of modest, low-slung, ranch-style houses interspersed with pockets of turkey oak scrub has been invaded by gargantuan homes with equally oversized trucks parked in the driveway. They tower over their older neighbors at a tragic comical scale difficult to convey, each identically crafted for maximum cheapness and interchangeability. Behold the McMansion in all its ready-made, disposable grandeur. I included a link to her article and her blog, McMansion Hell, in the show notes. All that's said about mansions and McMansions, luxury homes may or may not be mansions, as luxury can entail modern styles like Art Deco, like my home, international, the ubiquitous mid-century modern, postmodern, and contemporary. In this episode of American Building, I am sharing an edited version of the conversation I had in July 2021 with architect Kirk Mitchell. Kirk is the founder and principal at AKT Designs, an architecture and interior design firm based in Bergen County, New Jersey. He previously was the director of design and construction for Dixon Advisory, an Australian investment company focused on Metro New York City. He began his career at Scott Lurie Architect and Marchetto Higgins Steve. He is a graduate of Howard University and Carnegie Mellon University. Enjoy the conversation. And if you are interested in more stories related to housing and impact, visit the Commonplace website. Commonplace is the company I founded to make it easier to finance impactful real estate projects. Thank you so much for being with us here, Kirk. Thank you for having me. One of those particular projects when you left to start your own firm that we'll highlight today is 432 Woodland. So that's a single family home that you redesigned in Englewood. So for our listeners, can you describe this area, this part of New Jersey? Sure thing. So Englewood is located in Bergen County and Bergen County is northern New Jersey, right next to New York City. We're literally right next to the George Washington Bridge. So we are considered a suburb of the New York metropolitan area. I've grown up here most of my life. I'm a Bergen County boy, so I know the area very well. And Englewood is a little bit more of a city than the town that I'm from, Teaneck, which is more of a township. So in Englewood, you have a lot more larger density of people, and they're probably a bigger 
variety of, of classes and wealth portions. So you'll have apartment buildings and you'll have lower blue collar income, and then you'll have mega mansions for the super wealthy all within one town. That's actually where my, my office is located in Englewood, Jersey. So I have a good lay of the land. Uh, I know a lot of people in Englewood, but one of these first uh, single family renovation projects was a friend of a friend. And that's typically how I get work through word of mouth and um, referrals. I have a really good friend that I grew up with. His name is Dr. Jason Baines. He's an orthopedic surgeon and he has an office in Englewood. And he has a group of young black doctors, prominent doctors in Bergen County that he golfs with and uh, good close friends with. And I'm too, I'm an avid golfer. So one day he gives me a call from the golf course and says, hey, I got a buddy of mine. He's one of the best plastic surgeons in Bergen County. He just put an offer on a house up on the hills of Englewood and he's looking to do a complete renovation. Can you help him out? I said, I'll be here tomorrow. <laughs> Perfect. So that was the client for the project. And when you when you met him, what was the initial vision that he had for the project? So my client bought a, a ranch style home on about a about an acre worth of property, which is normal for North Woodland. It's one of the most prominent artery streets through the hills of Englewood. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to do a complete cave, uh, man's cave in the basement. Um, so the basement was a complete gut renovation. He wanted to redo the entire kitchen, master bedroom, master bathroom, all the bathrooms in the house, and just a complete cosmetic makeover to the rest of the home. Plus, he wanted to incorporate some new HVAC. So he had the idea that he wanted to do something like a ski chalet, 1970s, 80s ski interior. And how did you, did you like hold back your laughter there? <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's not professional to laugh in the face, but being that we're friends, I could. So I said, you know, I understand where you're coming from and I know where you're drawing the inspiration. However, that look is a bit dated now. And the problem with that is that if you go too strong in that direction, either your house is going to look dated now or dated later. At some point, it's going to be dated and the value is going to drop. So I said, I can definitely find a way to incorporate the natural woods that you like so much and the warm feeling of the chalet, but in a more modern format. So that's exactly what we did. One of the really cool things about this project is that the basement itself, they had this elaborate HVAC system because they had basically a spa inside the basement. And HVAC means uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, right? So they had a mechanical system that was literally just for the spa downstairs where they had a whirlpool, hot tub, heated spa. They had a shower, a steam shower. I mean, they had the works, but it's been very old. There was a lot of mold down there. It was dated and the ceiling heights were very low because of all this mechanical work. They were so low that the client couldn't use the basement for his enjoyment because all this mechanical work taking up the ceiling space. So what we did was we had to re-engineer the entire HVAC system for the house just so that he could get all his ceiling height back, which ended up being about between eight and eight and a half feet. Before we started, it was right below seven feet. Oh, wow. That not, not only is that not good, that's probably not up to modern standards, right, in terms of codes? Exactly. Well, because they didn't have habitable rooms down there, they were just considering it rec rooms and 
uh, I guess they got away with it and it's done so long ago. But what one of my clients also wanted to do is put a habitable uh, legal bedroom downstairs. So as if in order to do that, you have to have a minimum uh, ceiling height. So what we did was we, we got rid of some really big ductwork <laughs> and some really heavy stone. That was uh, literally the hot tub was made out of stone. And we designed the system. We dropped it uh, down and then we, we split the system in the house. So now the upper floor was controlled by a air handler in, this, in the attic and the lower floors were handling on its own separate system. We also, in order to make the basement legal and habitable, we put a second means of egress by adding an exit stair out into the side yard. So we did that. We did a couple of egress windows in the new bedroom. And we added, besides a large open space, we added a second kitchen, which is, for, for all intents and purposes, it's a bar, but it's really a second kitchen. We did an exercise room and billiards area and a huge TV and a full bathroom. So that came out. And we also added a, a brand new a stair, open riser stair, because the, the stair that was there, we kind of separated the, the basement into two pieces. And we wanted to feel like it was one whole space. So we got an open riser stair so you could kind of see right through it. So it sounds like the three key areas that it focused on was modernizing and upgrading all of the finishes. That's kind of the first level. The second thing being... The, the mechanical systems that supported everything that you wanted to do in the new layouts and the new look and feel. And then like the more fundamental and structural one is the circulation. So the, does that sound like the right way of breaking it down? Absolutely, absolutely. And then upstairs, you know, the, to your point, we opened up the living and kitchen areas, created a large island because now most of the living is done in the kitchen space when you have guests come over. So we opened up the living room spaces as well. We did a killer master bathroom. So my client is a bachelor and he said he plans on being a bachelor for a good amount of time. So that's one of the reasons that he wanted the man cave. But the other reason was to have a really great master bathroom so he can impress ladies. So we did a, a really cool walking, standing shower. It's like a human car wash. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it has a steam shower. It has about... I want to say six to nine sprays overhead. I mean, it's it's amazing. And then we have a, a large whirlpool, uh, a private toilet, and then my client's a little fancy. He went and bought this modern Japanese toilet that has it's all remote. It plays music and has lights. Yeah, lights and the seats warm and <laughs> thanks you when you leave. And uh, <laughs> so we did that. We we fitted all the closets to do master walk-in closets, and we did all the bathrooms in the house over. So we modernized the entire home. One of the things that he came to me, and, and this is not a lot of architects have experience also in the the value proposition of doing renovations home. And one of the things he came to me and said, listen, I bought this home for a such and such price. It's a ranch. Everybody else on the block would knock these kind of homes down and build a $2 million, $3 million, $4 million mansion. He said, I don't want to overcapitalize. I want to keep to budget. And that way, when I'm out of this after the renovation, I'm not at a point where I feel like I should have just ripped this down and built from scratch. So we were able to find that happy medium to modernize the entire house, but without making him regret it, not knocking it down and building something. So that given that there were a lot of steps in this process architecturally, and it sounds like there was a lot of decision making in terms of finishes, 
Talk to us about the the design process. So from the initial description and the the ski lodge aesthetic that that he described to the the final design that you presented. Like what is the step by step in that process? Okay, so after what we call schematic design is when we're working with the floor plan layout because you got to you have to make sure that you have a floor plan that's conducive to how the house is going to function, how you're going to live in the house. So once the floor plan was approved, then we started working on interior designs and moods. So what we do is either we'll do physical interior mood boards, but what we like to do even better than that is work off of Pinterest. Pinterest is a program that allows anybody to open up pages and pin images and then post comments to those images. So for instance, a lot of our clients, our private clients, it's hard for them to explain exactly what they like, but it's very easy for them to find pictures of what they like. Or if they go traveling, go to villas or hotels, they can take pictures and they can post them on this. And in that way, it creates a dialogue between us and the clients to say, okay, send us pictures of, ba- of your, your dream bathroom, your dream kitchen. You know, what do these spaces look like? What are the finishes that really are drawn in your eye? What are the colors? Now, there's so much that can be said and so the words when you share an image with somebody. So we set up a board for these different areas of the house and we have them pin images that they like. Then we start pinning images back and saying, this is what we see. So we're trying to marry the client's desires. We're trying to marry their budget. And we're also trying to marry the design trends of time, right? Because we want to make sure that whatever we do, that we're adding value to the property and not taking away property. So after a collaboration of a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks going back and forth the images and posts and comments, we really can narrow in on a client's desires and their need. Once we started showing them how we can modernize the look and still try to emulate the ski chalet, it was sold through the pictures. But then what we did is we do interior renderings. That way, if we do 3D photorealistic renderings to show our clients what those spaces look like before they spend a dollar on buying any finishes, that way they can be completely satisfied prior to starting construction. That's kind of the process of how we get the look, the feel, the desired design, and how we communicate our ideas and vice versa. And then once we have kind of a signed off interior design, then we break up all those finishes into what we call the finish schedule. And we do a package of a finish schedule that essentially itemizes every finished product in a project. So that ranges anywhere from appliances, plumbing fixtures, lighting fixtures, flooring, paint, wall coverings, tiles, everything that you can think of that if you were to take a building and shake it, if it wouldn't fall out. And the reason I say that is because we don't concentrate on soft finishes we have a designer that does that, but in-house we do hard finishes. So everything that's actually fixed to the home. Um, and then once we have this finished schedule package, along with the renderings, that goes with the construction drawings to a contractor to bid. This way, the client knows exactly how much their, let's call owner-supplied items will cost prior to it being bid. Sometimes if you don't have a tool like that, a contractor can bid prices or give you allowances and it's not very accurate. This also now gives the contractor, they know exactly from the rendering what the finished product should look like. They know when and how to order everything to their finished schedule because it's given to them early enough where if there are items at long lead times, they can go ahead and order those sooner than later. And then it's just a great tool 
to minimize costly mistakes, which you know in construction could add up to be a lot. So it sounds like the tools that you have at your disposal in this design process, it's the mood boards, which can be virtual or like a print version. Uh, then there's renderings, there's construction drawings, and then there is a finishes list or a finishes schedule. What do you say, like, I mean, when, I think this past year, a number of friends that are renovating their townhouses in New York or they moved to the suburbs and bought new houses and I'll pretty frequently get text messages of like, should I choose this one or this one? Or do you like this other <laughs> So amongst like the limitless options that you have at your disposal as a design professional, for example, for the tile, for the master bathroom that you were talking about, what process do you go through in order to take this limitless set of options to be something that is sensible for you to be looking at and then sensible for the client to make a decision about how does that work? So with the back and forth and Pinterest and other shareable images, we kind of get the idea of what the design is going to be. So that, that way we start to present different options and we'll present maybe three or four options, let's just say of a master bathroom uh, tile, but it won't just be the tile by itself. We'll present the tile along with the other finishes so they can see how it's incorporated into that look. Now we have a lot of vendors that we've worked with in the past that we know their price points we know that things will be readily available. So that way, it's easy for us. And we actually have some really good reps at, for instance, we use a uh, tile shop called The Tile Shop. <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, literally. And they're very popular in northern New Jersey and I believe New York. And we have a rep that I can just send them images and send them quantities and say, listen, I need something that looks like this within this price point and I need it by then. And they'll let me know if they can do it or not. And we have about four or five reps through different companies that do the same thing. Now, if it's something that's very special and a client comes to us and says, listen, I want this, I don't know, this bare skin covered floor tile, <laughs> then it's something we, we may have to search for. And, or if it's out of budget or if we can't find it, it's not going to work with our timeline. We try our, our best to find something as comparable as possible. It, it sounds like your ability to produce a really accurate, really beautiful, effective finishes schedule has a lot to do with the relationships that you've developed with all of these vendors for all these different products. Does that sound right? Absolutely. That and our interior designers are wonderful. Our head interior designer, Erica Gibson, she, I can show her something, a, a blank white subway tile, and she can pretty much tell me where to get it and how much it costs. I think that that's definitely, definitely an art. For me, I've used a Garden State tile for tile for, for many projects, and I find that that relationship helps a lot because uh, they can kind of fill in the gaps between our own knowledge as architects. So the pandemic has changed a lot of the normal processes of residential design. And what would you say has been the biggest change in terms of the process and also like the physical layout of homes that you've been working on? Sure thing. Yeah, homes. I mean, because of COVID, you'll notice that people were stuck in their house for almost a year and then they had to live with their families for a year, nine to five. And that included the kids running in and out of their home offices or uh, people trying to work on the dining room tables, trying to do their work while they're trying to virtually help their children in class. So a lot of people came to us looking to do extensions in their home. They needed more space. They realized they needed more space because there was nowhere for them to work, nowhere for them to work out, nowhere for them to get quiet or relax. So we got a lot of requests for extensions. We got requests for office spaces, home gyms, finished basements, new master bedrooms. A lot of people also, because of COVID, notice the real estate market here has gotten really hot. So it's 
pretty much a seller's market. And because a lot of people found out that they can get a substantially large amount for their homes, they wanted to do some renovations to see if they can increase the value of their property, either refinance and put cash out or go ahead and sell. And with selling, they'd have to buy something and then they were looking to buy that. So it's almost like a, a cluster or a perfect storm that kind of changed the way people are looking at their homes or designing them. A lot of outdoor spaces, we've done like covered patios and outdoor kitchens and pools. Pools now can increase the value of your home from $100,000 to $200,000. It's amazing. We've done pool houses. We've done a lot of these amenity spaces where typically somebody that was working from, I don't know, 8 o'clock in the morning to 6 p.m. out in the city or out of the office, they didn't have time to really enjoy their homes. And because of COVID, even if you had to go back to work, now you realize that it's more in life than just making money and uh, staying in an office. No, it's about enjoying the time, enjoying the money that you made and enjoying what ones that you love. So now we've kind of taken that theme and brought it into the design uh, spaces a little bit more intimate. And then you have these hideaway spaces, kids' rooms, kids' playrooms, private gyms, people, a lot of people... They were scared to go to the gym, myself included. I had to set up a private gym in my house. A lot of people converted some of their, their garages into man caves or gyms. So we are seeing a lot of that. And we're seeing a lot of bounce back now too, where for instance, people were scared to spend money for a little bit on home. But now it's almost like it gave a lot of people a year to save their money. So given the, the fact that it seems like all of America is renovating their homes right now, another issue, like a consequence of that is material availability and costs due to supply chain disruptions. Could you talk about how that has affected your projects and how you try to mitigate those issues? Yes. So we've been very fortunate in that the time that materials, specifically lumber, I think that increased like 300%, at the time that that happened, our projects were either coming to completion or they were in a lot of the bigger projects were in phases of approval with the building department. And because COVID slowed everything down, it also slowed down approvals. So we got lucky enough that all the projects that had major framing were either already framed or hasn't, haven't started yet. So some of the items that we had, finished items, or there'd be flooring, cabinets, some mechanical equipment. It was on back order. So some of the projects got delayed, but other projects hold indefinitely. So we had a few development projects. We do a lot of uh, large-scale mixed-use development now, anywhere between 20 and 120 units. And some of those projects, because they couldn't get pilot programs or tax abatement programs through the city because COVID kind of shut down the cities, and they were worried about the skyrocketing price of materials, those projects got put on hold or they were finding difficulties getting them financed. So luckily, things are starting to go back to normal. But I know um, some of the underwriters for banks that are seriously looking at these projects differently because of construction costs and labor costs. Because somebody, so, especially in this particular region of America, so many people are building and so many people are working that it's hard to find somebody. It's nearly impossible to find anybody to do a small job. In a larger jobs, so you're getting a tax. You're getting, if you want it now, you're going to pay extra because we got a whole bunch of people waiting. And this is included for us. I mean, we don't put a tax on our work, but we're getting close to our bandwidth and we're trying to scale up our business because we have such a demand. We have um, 
been blessed to have a, a, a lot of contracts and deadlines coming soon. So, yeah. <laughs> I think that's something that you're correct in saying that it's something that design professionals as well as contractors have this, this glut of demand, this project over the past couple of years uh, or the past year specifically. One thing that has that is tied to that is this unprecedented flow of people and money from core urban areas like Midtown Manhattan and Brooklyn Heights to ring areas like Jersey City, like Hoboken, the North Fork, the South Fork, Hudson Valley, Western Connecticut. I think we have friends that have all gone off to these places. What do you see in terms of your pipeline? Do you see that being reflective where now you're doing projects all across this tri-state or are you seeing people staying put where they are and doing a lot of that renovation work in place in the house that they're in already? We get probably a mix of both. Again, we're very lucky to be located where we are. Being in the northern New Jersey, New York metropolitan area, you get the best of both worlds. One, you got New York City, and then right outside of New York City, you have the suburbs. And they're vastly different, especially when it comes to property values. If I were to look for, let's just say, a a 2,000-square-foot home in Manhattan, I could easily be paying $2 million dollars. Uh, for $2 million in the suburbs of New Jersey, literally 10 to 15 minutes away, you could probably have about a seven to 8,000 square foot newly built home with everything that you can possibly think of plus an acre of land. <laughs> so we've gotten lucky in that the people that left New York to go into the suburbs, we got them as clients. The people that thought they wanted to go to the suburbs or they moved up and they bought a larger home for more space within the city, we got them as well. Many architects in this area don't work both in New Jersey and New York because they're two different animals when it comes to approvals, when it comes to construction process. But we've been very fortunate that we have both markets um, because we have a lot of experience in, in both. So we do have our large share of clients that left Manhattan. They went to Brooklyn, they went to Queens, they came over here to Bergen County, Hudson County, Passaic, Essex County. So we got those clients, but we also got the clients, oddly enough, that they felt as though their mansions in the suburbs, it was too much, it was too much to take care of. Um, and the amount of money that they were spending or time that they were spending, uh, it could just be like hiring a landscaper, coming twice a week, spending $1,000 a week on, on an acre of land. But they wanted to move back into the city, be closer to their family, and then they spent money on, on brownstones. So we, We've oddly enough seen both the mass exodus out of New York City and then a small exodus back into the city. Okay. And I guess that creates opportunities for design, renovation of all of those those properties that are being picked up again back in the city. So during this time, you've also pivoted towards multifamily and commercial projects, including several in, in Newark and New Jersey. Could you talk about some of those projects? Sure thing. We have a, a few of them. One right now under construction is a famous Don Pepe's restaurant in Newark, New Jersey, right off on Route 21. This is from one of my attorneys that works with our site plan applications, the end use attorney, his name is Chris Murphy. Some good projects for us. And Pepe, the owner of Don Pepe's, older gentleman, great businessman. He's been in business in Newark for over 40 years, um, knows exactly what he wants and, and how he wants it. And he needed a, he was hurting because he has a restaurant, just like most restaurant businesses during COVID. And New Jersey came out with a protocol that said that if you had 
a space that had 50% or more open space, then you were allowed your uh, standard maximum capacity and you wouldn't be limited due to COVID. So he wanted to do an extension. We did about a 2,000 square foot extension, one-story extension of his restaurant that is 50% open to the outside elements. And meaning we what we did was we used data wall folding door glass systems so that during uh, operational hours of the business, almost the entire walls can be opened up. And then once it's closed, it can be closed for security. But it's a really cool space. It should be opening in about a month. Uh, they move very quickly. Then we have other projects, um, large-scale projects. One is on Halsey Street, 289 Halsey Street, and that's a 40-unit residential multifamily building, four stories residential, over one-story parking and commercial. That's really cool space because Halsey is um, right downtown, not too many blocks away from Whole Foods, and where the work is changing every day very drastically. We got an opportunity to do a really nice building design there. And that one is in the building department now being reviewed for construction drawings, permits, so that we can start hopefully breaking ground in the next month or two. So it sounds like with all of these projects from Newark to Manhattan, small projects, big projects, you're incredibly busy. So what, from your experience, is an important part of being able to be really efficient with your team and, and the production, like collaboration, what would you say are the, the most important things in managing a team to be able to do all of this stuff? Absolutely. First is the right team, right? The right team members. You have to have the right people in position to, you want to delegate certain things that people are good at and people enjoy, right? One of the things I learned early is that if you're pigeonholed in doing something that you hate, you're not going to be very good at it, just like we spoke towards in the beginning. So when you find somebody that has a passion in something like I did for design, then you want to emerge them in design and they will come out uh, successful. So we have the right team members, the right consultants, the right staff to be able to handle these projects, but also to create a template. So we have a template for our New York projects, a template for our New Jersey projects. And we try to stick to that template as best possible to streamline the design and the production process. One of the great things that I learned at DeMarchetto's with this type of scale building, which is what we used to work on, the, the mid to high rise multifamily building, mixed use buildings, is that you want a very comprehensive, good looking set of drawings. If, you're, if nobody can read your drawings, then they're pointless, right? <laughs> if you can't find something, if it's too cluttered, if you have so many dimensions that you can't read any notes on your drawings, then you're going to get a lot of questions. You're going to get a lot of change orders. Change orders means a lot of money, a lot of blown money. So by creating these templates, trying to have as a most comprehensive, attractive set of drawings that we can, it helps kind of fill in the void of that, those gaps. So right team members, um, having a good template in order to streamline the production process, and then knowing your clients' wants. One of the big things is we make sure to not let our design egos get in the way of our client's pockets or our client's vision. Just like the initial client with the, the chalet, the ski chalet, we could have said, no, no way. No, we're not designing anything like that. That's not in our, no, we wouldn't do anything. We're not going to put our name on a ski chalet. But we say, I want to let you know, I want to manage your expectations that you may not love this at the end result, but we think we can find a happy medium. So it's important, especially for the developers, if they need a certain amount of units to make a project feasible, then we have to make sure that we get them those amount of units. And then if we can't, try to find other um, creative ways of regaining that lost value. 
Thanks for joining me today on American Building. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe on your favorite listening app and don't forget to rate and review. And friends, I've teamed up with writers for the New York Times and Dwell Magazine to launch a digital media platform to tell the fascinating stories of the impact developers and capital providers I work with at Commonplace. Check it out at commonplace.us.